the best questions don't really have good answers. You know, the, the biggest questions in our lives don't really have great answers. I, I haven't found, you know, we're so used to question, answer, question, answer, so that we can solve something. But, but um, often when we answer a question, it's like we end, we end that interaction. Sometimes people aren't really asking for an answer. They're just asking to be heard. They're asking for the connection. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. One of the people in my life who serves as a real inspiration is Rabbi Judah Michelle. We're friends, and yeah, we talk on the street. And every time I speak with him, I come away with some insight, just a different way of looking at the world, which provides me with encouragement and, frankly, joy. I think everybody who knows Rav Judah counts him among the Masam Chelev, those people who bring happiness to those who encounter them. Last week, after talking on the street for about half an hour, I asked him if he would come on the podcast. I wanted to share his insights into faith, trusting in God, educating kids, inculcating passion to Judaism, asking and addressing questions, the importance of stories, and the place of chassidut. And Rav Judah graciously agreed. Before we get to the interview, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, if you can, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and then writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group on Facebook. Finally, please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. Over the next few weeks leading up to Pesach, I'll be releasing a large number of special bonus podcasts with insights into the Haggadah exclusively for Patreon subscribers. So sign up today. You'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread the message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Rabbi Judah Michel is executive director of Camp Hask, the Hebrew Academy for Special Children. He is the mashpia of OUNCSY and founder of Tzama Nafshi. As I mentioned before, he has beautiful, deep insights into so many areas of Jewish thought and experience. And he's one of the rare individuals who really and truly epitomizes Ben Zoma's dictum, Ezehu Chacham, Halomeid Mikol Adam, who is wise, someone who learns from all human beings. Although I didn't realize that he like me, considers Mr. Rogers to be one of his rabbeim. Listen in to find out more. Rav Judah Michel, my good friend, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, it's so nice to be here with you. Before we got on the air, I told you how people seem to enjoy the episodes I've done that deal with emuna, faith, trust in God, bitachon, and I wanted to talk to you about those issues. And you mentioned we should also talk about why people like talking about that. So, with that introduction, why don't we open up with that first question which you offered? Uh, no, days are coming, days are here. There's a thirst in the world, there's a hunger in the world. It's a hunger that's uh, not just a hunger for bread and not just a thirst for water, but uh, there's, a, there's a basic human need to be drawn and to be connected to its source, and that source is divine, and every single one of us is yearning to be close to Hashem and to reveal more godliness within us uh, and in our lives. It's a pretty ancient, pretty, pretty original. <laughs> it's hardwired. We're hardwired that way, you know? 
I think a lot of people find it very difficult now. In some ways, they feel that even though perhaps, as you say, we're getting closer to the time when people need this perhaps more than ever, sometimes it feels more difficult than ever to hang on to faith. I've heard that repeatedly. People talk about whether it's problems from academia, whether it's problems from seeing what's going on in the world outside, look out our window right now, and people are walking around with masks, people can't even go to shul in many places. It seems that it's more difficult than ever for some people to believe. What are they supposed to do? I don't know. There's a you know, there's a there's an old song that uh, that's playing in my head right now. I don't know if I should sing it, but you know, first you things first, a person has to uh, first, listen to your heart. We have to we have to <laughs> restore our factory uh, default. Uh, you know, to bring things back to a very a very basic and natural way of, of, of. There's a lot of noise in the world, a lot of distraction, and there's also a lot of. You know, you mentioned academia. You mentioned the pandemic. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, static and a lot of interference that gets in the way of us hearing the natural rhythm of our inner world, hearing our heartbeat, just being aware of our own breath. Let alone thinking about you know who's or what force in the world, what higher power, if any, in the world is is making that heartbeat, and what the source of that breath is before we even even get into the religious side of it, I mean, people, we have a hard time just keeping our heads on and thinking about anything real, and anything meaningful, and, and dare I say deep, um, beyond just, you know, the functional, uh, technical aspect of life, let alone the the hustle and bustle and the rush, let alone, you know, the, the great, uh, the great tragedy of this, uh, of this pandemic is that we just are focused so, so much on, on on this problem and this challenge, like it's it, it's hard to like to allow the most like that inner voice and that that inner rhythm come out. Well, what do you tell people when they ask you how they're able to deal with it when they don't hear that voice but they want to hear that voice? What do you recommend to them? Instead of my own self, I don't know. If I'm recommending for anybody else is just just try to slow things down a little bit. I mean, we're pulled in so many directions. Um, not saying anything here that we haven't, you know, spoken about a thousand times and that everybody's not thinking about all the time. We're pulled in a million directions. Mom, we're in a million God. different WhatsApp groups. Um, you know, the news, if, it, if it bleeds, it leads. The news is making us crazy and uh, anxiety is on the rise. And, and we're busy with what we're busy with. And there's an incredible hustle. And it's an old story. You know, now it's just a little bit more. So the first things first is just to slow things down a little bit. I mean, it's, it's not new, you know, it's not Rabbi Nachman, there's an anecdote about Rabbi Nachman Breslov that um, he was looking for somebody. He saw him, you know, he found this person looking out the window into the marketplace. Somebody was avoiding him. They had some interaction. Right. And uh, Rabbi Nachman came, you know, came upon this person. He saw him looking out a window into the marketplace. And he looked at him, you know, he kind of pointed to him like, you know, I gotcha, you know, I, <laughs> I see you, you know, <laughs> yeah. I see you. And he said, look around, you know, look around, look at the marketplace. You see, you know, all the, the people going to and fro, the horses and the merchants said like, soon, you know, they'll be gone and you'll be gone and I'll be gone. And there'll be other merchants here and other horses and there'll be other people doing business. He said, but look at the sky. Look up at the sky. Sky will always be here. The sky will continue. That's an old Jewish tradition of looking up in the sky and seeing me bara Eila, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about you know, where we come from, the bigger picture to attach ourselves. But to do that, we have to pause and get out of, you know, everything we're in the middle of and just kind of look up for a moment so that we can look within. A student of mine with whom I'm very close told me at the beginning of the pandemic that he was having a really difficult time talking 
to his kids. He mentioned one of his kids who said to him, a little kid, the shuls are closed. We can't go to shul. Why is Hashem so angry with us? And he felt heartbroken not knowing what to answer him. If he had asked you that question, what would you have told him? Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the, the first things first, you know, first rule of, of a question like that is, is just to hear the question, just to evaluate the question. You know, some, we're, we're so used to, to, to having a question and needing an answer. Short answer, long form answer, uh, multiple choice answer. It also, of course, depends if you're talking to a five-year-old or a 25-year-old. But either way, even if you're talking to a 55-year-old, the first things first is to hear the, the, the most important aspect or element of an answer sometimes is just hearing the question. The best questions don't really have good answers. You know, the, the biggest questions in our lives don't really have great answers. I, I haven't found, you know, we're so used to question, answer, question, answers so that we can solve something. But, but um, often when we answer a question, it's like we end, we end that interaction. Sometimes people aren't really asking for an answer. They're just asking to be heard. They're asking for the connection, you know, like the Pesach Seder night, which we're heading toward. Just like the headquarters, our big night of questions and right. answers, you know. I thought there were only four. We ask a co- <laughs> well, we ask a question, then we ask another question to answer. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. And then we kind of ask another question. You know, what, what, what good Jewish conversation doesn't answer a question with another question? There's a very beautiful reason for that. I'm not trying to just avoid your question. No, no, but, no it's all good. But, but, <laughs> but the, the heaviest questions really reflect... I don't know, not so much a, 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 a desire for, for an informational answer, but, but a desire to be heard and a desire to be, to be seen and for the sense of for engagement. You know, the, the questions of Eicha Yashva Badad, how could it be? How could it be? How could it be? I mean, what's the, the questions aren't really answered very well. You know, the Balatanya says that, that the first Eicha, how could it be in, in, in the Torah is not... Eicha, Hashem, how could you have destroyed Yishalayim? How could we be exiled? How, but it's really Adam Harishon, after the Chait, Hashem asking Adam, Ayeka, you know, where are you? You know, it's answering a question with another question. And it's, and it's a question that ultimately brings us bigger comfort than a specific answer is, is knowing that we're not asking that question alone. When our kids ask questions that like, I don't have the answers to, or even sometimes when I have the answer, you know, I say, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I have the same question. That's a, let's, let's ask that, that question together. Or, or what do you think? You know, hmm. what, what do you, what, what do you say? I'd ask that five-year-old, I, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't try to convince him that Hashem's not angry or that Hashem doesn't feel things or that he's not right. But I don't know. What, what, what do you think? And to open that, that, that painful dialogue is a dialogue. A few weeks ago, I had a guest on the podcast, someone named Tim Madigan, who wrote a book about his relationship with Mr. Rogers. It's a fantastic book. It's called I'm Proud of You. It's one of my favorites. Fantastic. So I had him on the podcast, and he talked about, as you know from the book, his difficulty in his marriage and his difficulty. His brother was dying from cancer in a very painful way. It was was some real, real sorrows, real problems, and talking to Mr. Rogers about it. And Mr. Rogers' greatness was not answering the question or telling him what to do, giving him advice. It was simply being there and Imo Nochi Bitsara, I'm with you. It was his presence, his ability to be there with Tim when Tim was having a hard time that mattered far more than any potential answer he could have given. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers is a Genalenu, who was really one of the great righteous people of the generation. One of the, one of the great teachers of the generation, one of the great men of God in the generation. He was one of the great he was the ultimate validator. 
his strength as a as an educator and as a role model um at least you know i felt there's is to slow things down when that trolley came in and the light turned to yellow it was deliberately to slow things down and and then when he'd come in and remove his shoes you know it was it was the it was i mean he was presbyterian he was a minister i mean he was a man of god he was a man of scripture when he removed his shoes he was recognizing you know the same way that hashem instructed moshe rabbeinu to take you know shalna alecha ma'al raglecha you know, take off your shoes. Be be connected to the ground that you're standing on. Don't make don't make any separation between you and the place in which where you're standing. And then he'd put on you know more comfortable shoes, and he'd put on more comfortable sweater. It was to kind of take the to change the pace and to create an environment of safety and and of acceptance. And that was that was the ultimate. Uh, that was his ministry. <laughs> that was literally his ministry. For sure, you know, and the power of Mister Rogers was was that uh, you know it was, it was public television. There's a separation between church and state, and there was no mention of God, but the, the sacred space between the screen and the uh, millions and millions of us who grew up with it, um, and him was, was was all gospel. It was all the word of God. It was all you know um, bringing us closer to ourselves and to each other, and uh, that was his, that was his power, and, and it was without answering. It was without giving without solutions. Without, and also without, without fantasy, meaning there's fantasy in the sense of imagination, but not giving answers that he doesn't really believe. He actually was very careful to say that on his show, when it's just him, he's not going to play games. So, for example, at one point, he became friendly with Carol Spinney, the puppeteer who played Big Bird. And Big Bird was invited onto his show. Big Bird wanted to come in wearing the costume. and That was great. But Mr. Rogers says, but you have to take it off to show people that it's really you underneath it, that there's no such thing as Big Bird in the real world. And Carol Spinney wasn't comfortable with that. So in the end, he came on in the neighborhood of make-believe, which Mm -hmm. Mr. Rogers says, it's okay, we can have make-believe. But when I'm talking to a child, I don't want him to think I'm playing games with him. I'm telling him the truth as I understand it. This goes back to to the original question of like, what do you tell a kid that Hashem is angry? Uh, and how do we deal with with the situation where we feel that the world is is so difficult? Everyone's wearing masks. Well, the whole world is a mask. Hashem created the world, the Olam, as in a state of Helim. God Himself is masked in the world, and God's mito themselves are also expressions and are also masks. You know, God is happy. God is sad. God is revengeful. God is a, a fa- God is a is a man, a woman. Like what you know, God is, you know, we're giving human terms to try to understand something which is beyond understanding to answer that which is unanswerable. But we, we still have to ask the question, and uh, we have to ask the question together, and to, to seek out, you know, I, I say kinship, togetherness, uh, strength, chizuk, whatever term you want to use within this world of concealment to, to reveal here and there moments of grace, moments of, of friendship, moments of hope. Um, and, and maybe that's called uh, searching for Amuna together. In that case, I want to ask you about something else, which is less about questions and more about stories. You're an excellent storyteller. I've heard you tell stories. And in fact, every week in Torah Tidbits, the OUNCSY pamphlet, <laughs> it comes out. I was telling you the other day how I always enjoy, you always have a story. You say you can't lose with a story. What do you think the power of a story is? What, what's the place of a story in chinuch and education, why is the story so important? Uh, God is a storyteller. Hashem, Hashem told the story, and that story is the world. It's the greatest story ever told. It's also the worst story ever told. It's also the greatest story ever told. It's like, you know, hopefully it'll be a happy ending, but like right. so far, we're all I guess we'll find out. That is great. <laughs> But uh, the, the Rebbe Shalom built it into us that we that we are that we love stories 
and, and uh, stories resonate. And it's actually it's even funny, I'm glad you mentioned Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers had a Rebbe. He himself had a Mashpia. Henry Nguyen, who was... Um, uh, uh, we mentioned him on the, the podcast as well. One of the great Sadiqim of the generation. I have to listen to it. Uh, I'm behind. So Henry Nguyen was a, himself a person who, um, who wrote a lot about uh, storytelling, he, about scripture, about studying scripture. His modality of studying scripture, something that like, I really connected with because it's, I'll say Lahavdil, I'll say Lahavdil just to make a, a separation between, you know, different, um, let's say, starting points. But ultimately, I think the same goal. Lahavdil, it, it's, it's a very Hasidic way of studying scripture. It's, um, let's say, the difference between, like, when Rabbi Heschel would talk about the difference between um, studying halacha, studying Jewish law, um, which is more structured and more, you know, definite and, and, and specific and utilitarian almost, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's a bottom line versus the agadic portion of the Torah, which is symbolic and metaphoric and, and, and more of a storyline. So there's, I should say, there's different personalities that are drawn in those different, in those, to those different, you know, ways of Torah, those different pathways. And really we need to find the balance between the halacha and the, and, and the, and the agada. Henry Nguyen of blessed memory was a man of the Agartha. He was a man of a, a midrashic person. Um, he was a person who, who, who I, I don't know if he learned Torah of the Baal Shem Tov. I know that, that, that Mr. Rogers was familiar with Rabbi Nachman of Breslau's writings and was very connected to those writings. Hmm. Um, I wrote a letter to his, to his Rebbitton, to Mrs. Rogers, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago and asked that. And, and she, I have a letter from her. She responded that he was. And then later really? found in one of, the, one of the books that came out that Mr. Rogers had a piece of Torah, Rabbi Nachman's Reish Pebe's famous Torah of Azamra about finding the good points in people and connecting to light in people, he had it in his scrapbook. He had had it in really? cut out in his scrapbook. I did so not it was, know not that. Surpri- it's, not, it's not surprising that Nuin was somebody who saw things in a Hasidic, almost like um, a Havdil in a Hasidic perspective, which is not just telling a story to get a point across, not just sharing a story to deliver a message, but sharing a story is a way of, of kind of finding myself in the story. Um, he what do you mean by that? Reading. What do you mean finding yourself in the he story? Call, he called it spiritual reading. For example, when we learn Parsha, and this week we're going to, we're going to, we're learning Parsha. Okay. We're, we're, we're reading about the ups and downs of the Jews in the Midbar and the, the desert, learning about their mistakes and their, and their moments of closeness and distance, reading about the, the golden calf, reading about Pesach, uh, whatever we're reading about. The way of understanding it as something that happened then, to my ancestors, and it's a meaningful story. It happened to them. There's some DNA in the relationships. There's something there that's built in to our national, you know, internal mechanism. There's a the algorithm, the coding of a Jew, whatever you want to call it, behind the, the screen. There's something there that, uh, that that I also can relate to, and I could draw some lesson. These stories know, are fractals. Him. They're repeating throughout I, history. That's fractals, how I see it. Exactly, fractals. I love that. I love that. Exactly, exactly. And and or and I'm reading about Degelazav. I could wonder where would I be in this story? Where am I in this story? In what way? You know, am I, am I Moshe on the mountain? Am I Aaron here on the side, not not knowing whether I should intervene? Am I connecting to the, the women who didn't fall for the fool's gold? Or am I one of the masses that would have gotten involved? Would have been Gili Arayos? Would have been Shvi Chastavim? Would I have killed somebody? Or am I a Levi? I'm actually a Levi. Would I have been the one who, like, Mila Hashem Elai, and kind of protested? Or or maybe I can imagine myself in all of those different, you know, parts and kind of connect to a spiritual reading is trying to read myself into the story. 
When I hear a story about a Hasidic master, or you hear a, 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 a stand-up comedian, you know, share a story, you see some scene of Costanza uh, sitting on the couch and Elaine at the counter and Newman throwing the door open and then, and then, and then Kramer coming up, like, it's funny, it's, it's happening to them, but like, where am I in all of this? What, what, do, what part of me relates to what's going on in there? It's like, it personalizes a message in a more, and sometimes in a more powerful way than just kind of, you know, here's what you do, here's what you don't do, here's what we're allowed to do, here's how much you have to eat, here's how much you're not allowed to eat. We love stories because, because we, we, we feel ourselves, we, we, we feel our humanity in those stories. We, we can relate to the ups and downs in those stories and the, the faux pas of the story, the punchline. You know, or the suffering in the story, or the hope in the story, and uh, that's why I love telling stories, uh, and, and find and and, lo and love listening to stories because I feel like this whole world is just one crazy story. And the more we're in tune with our inner rhythm, to go back to that, the more we can find ourselves and recognize that there's different chapters to the story, and the story is kind of never ending, and. You know, we can imagine someone reading it to us and we can imagine ourselves and like maybe it's Billy Crystal sitting at the bedside kind of reading us the story <laughs> in the, you know, I don't know. That's in my, in my mind. I don't know. I understand. The, yeah. the owner Shalom was like Billy Crystal, but like, you know, it, it's comforting. Stories I'm learning more about you than I thought I would. Always, there'd be another chapter. <laughs> well, you usually see me on my way to Mincha. That's only really one very small part of me that that's not the fractal that represents the bigger part. That's understood. You know, <laughs> you know, Rav Judah, you obviously talk a lot about the Hasidic masters in your stories as well as just now discussing Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, discussing the Balatanya. Do you think that Hasidut, the Hasidic ideas that have been inculcated over the past 200, 300 years, has something unique to offer people of faith nowadays that we need? Is there something fundamental about Hasidut that our world requires right now? Yeah, I, I believe so, and I believe it's happening. The main tenets of the Shem Tov in kind of say creating this uh, this renewed you know this, this this renewed focus on the soul and the self and our relationship with God, it's about camaraderie, friendship, uh, knowing that we're not alone, breaking things down to a very to their fundamentals, keeping things simple, um, empowering the every person, releasing God so to speak from a specific time and place, and accessing Hashem in our everyday you know, in our every moment, and really focusing on how every single one of us has a, a, an unbreakable bond and that we're, that we're completely bound up with and connected to the Ribbon of Shalom in our, in our every single moment. You know, the Baal Shem Tov empowered every single one, you know, every, every single woman, child, and man to recognize that, to appreciate that, and uh, to believe in that. So, yeah, I think more than ever, we see that it's happening. You know, mm -hmm. like we, we see that it's happening. You see that people are drawn to it. Um, and there's lots of elements that's philosophical. There's a very heavy philosophical side of Hasidut. You know, Rabbi Salavechik had that, that unpublished commentary on Sefer Hatanya, you know, that uh, Rabbi Salavechik wrote, that uh, Rabbi Adler had, mentions in his most recent book. That probably had not so much to do with like eating fuffle off of a Rebbe's plate or wrapping one's payas in front of the ear or behind the ear. You know, or, or or belonging to some club with a certain you know rules about about marital intimacy, you know, it had to do with philosophical the, the philosophy and, and the uh, the accessing God through the mind through das, and that's also part of Chasidut. I mean, Chasidut has a lot of different elements to it, um, and, and uh, I think in our in our generation we're finding 
it's you know it's, it's popularity rising because I mean because it's true because it's real because because it works. Rav Salvechik, I know he always felt bad. It's been quoted by Rav Aaron Lichtenstein's Atzal as well as others. That Rav Salvechik felt that he was unsuccessful in certain ways in transmitting to his students that experiential feeling of God, the deep emotional connection to God that he had. And I believe that part of his attachment to the Balatanya and to that element of Chassidut was probably because he felt that it could assist in that experiential way of having God in one's life. Rav would say that in terms of philosophy, in terms of halacha, he was very successful in teaching. His students were very dedicated, but the warmth of his soul, he wasn't able to get across. So I think that's an element of chassidut yeah, which is really important. Leida. That's what he said, leida. Right. right. He said, like, I managed to give an over the idea, but leida, because da'as is not just an idea. It's not just informational download, right? I mean, you're a, 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 a highly successful mid-shear and giving over. I remember I listened to your Shurman Brachos years ago and methodology in Gemara, right? You can you can do that and, and you have the ability to give over Torah, right? But there's 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 something that even the best Magad Shir can't give over. And that is the personal experience. That is the spiritual reading of Torah, right? That's what Rav Salvage called Leida, the intimacy of Torah. Aniyadati of living of living it oneself, and he said that that's like, like as is expressed. If I remember in one of the introductions to the to, to Salvation and Chumash, I think it might have been Beratius. The introduction there, where he, he specifically he quotes the the Kedusha slavery, and he says, you know that you know I've managed like you like I managed to give over Torah to my students, but but that but the the, the song of the Berdichever that you Hashem do. You're, you're here, you're there, you're up, you're down, you're east, you're west. How can I give that over? I mean, how, how can anybody give that over? Well, what's the answer? How can anybody give that over? How do we give that to somebody? If we want someone to have that experience, we can demonstrate, I suppose, what we experience ourselves to the degree that is possible. But how can we teach anyone that? I mean, how is this even a failure for a salvation to think that? Because how is it possible for anybody to do it? Is it fundamentally impossible? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm trying here. <laughs> I'm trying. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. We're trying in our house. Right? There's a way of saying, of telling, right? I mean, this is this is the most powerful night of transitions Passover. We're telling. But what do people remember from the, from the Seder? They remember the vort that you say? Do they remember the, uh, they drank the shear of Rebchaim Noi, drank the shear of the, here's how much matzah I ate, how fast I ate it, the, you know, do they remember the songs of the Seder? Do they remember the family traditions of the Seder? Do they remember the taste of the matzo ball soup or that we didn't have matzo ball soup or mm-hmm. the, the, you know, Bobby's crepes or the, the, the jelly rings and, or, or the one Uncle Herbie would take out his false teeth and put it in to make it fall into the wine glass. Yeah, I hated that. Pesach night. Yeah, Pesach, everyone has their weird, you know, the great weird <laughs> uncle, and God bless. So Pesach night, but the, the night of transmission of, of values, so much that we focus on, he got it, telling over. And Hilchos Pesach, we're already learning 30 days before the Gemara says, you know, and, and, and a person can spend God knows how much time in the minutia of the preparation of it. And all of that is, is essential, but the rhythm of transmission really is at the core of the text the, the Havas Bikurim, the Maisa Bikurim, the, the description in the middle of the Parsha that describes the Tochacha, where uh, it's pretty incongruous, it seems like it doesn't fit exactly, telling a story about a guy who has a field planted and, and, and reaped and sowed and hoped and prayed and rainy season and drought, and finally has his fruits and he brings his fruits to the land of Israel and says, ah, this is good, thank you, Hashem. What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with 
Arami Ovid Avi, like that, that's the main part of the Haggadah. Hello, there's so many parts we could talk about, about the Exodus, some of the things to talk about. Spend a few more psukim. Talk about Moshe Rabbeinu, for God's sakes. I mean, I don't right. know. There's so many things we could talk about, you know, in between the plastic frogs and, uh, you know, whatever, the, the, the Sephardim running around with the scallions hitting each other. I mean, there's so many different things that you can fit in there. And Rav Salvechik explained Pesach night is about storytelling. It's about gratitude. And the story of this guy, it's not about telling a story about some guy in Eretz Israel 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, who brought a basket of fruits to the temple. It's for us to see ourselves in the story, to have a spiritual reading of it, to read, to hear the story and say, okay, where in my life have I invested? Where in my life have I struggled? Have I failed? Have I succeeded? What am I grateful for? What did I put in effort and then see bounty from? And then to share that and everyone to share that story, to see ourselves in the Haggadah, to see ourselves as having left Mitzrayim, not just to like do some type of meditative ex exercise to transfer, transplant ourselves 3,000 years ago. Maybe that's the beginning of it. But right now, where am I in some Mitzar? What are we going through as a family? What am I going through as an individual in our marriage, as, a, as parents and children? What am I going through as a person vis-a-vis -vis my Amuna through all of this difficult time? And where, what type of Bikurim am I able to bring out of it? Where can I find moments of grace, moments of gratitude to be able to to, to celebrate a moment of freedom within uh, within the slavery of the of, of, of my modern world. That's what I mean. That's a story, you know. Pesach, that's beautiful. That's a story, and that's why I love those. Who doesn't love a story? When well, I love talking about myself, we all love we all love putting ourselves at the center of everything if we're healthy, you know. So the the way we do that in a way that that's not too gross uh, and self promotional is by reading ourselves into the stories of the avos of the imahos of of the shvatim of, of the, the their, their family narrative and, and and everything that we read about in torah to see ourselves and it also to see that it impacts us that's beautiful i love that i want to get back to some of the hasidic thinkers you mentioned before who are the hasidic thinkers you think that our generation needs to go and listen to with the acute ear to really pay attention to today well, mr rogers you mentioned already for sure he is a rabbi. Um, I mean, I, it, this is like the, a, a person can only... I realize I'm asking you to, to play favorites here no, because no, no. they're all great. But. <laughs> no, you didn't ask me who my favorites are, yeah? <laughs> um, no, I wish I had a, like, a, like, like some code so I could like push merch. We go buy their book and put in code. <laughs> right, put in the code. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get a kickback for that. In other I'll talk moment, to you after the show. Really learn. You know, there's different strokes for different folks. And not everybody necessarily will connect with the limud of Hasidus, with the study of Hasidus. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with that. There's Shivim Panam Torah, And within every one of those Gvanim, every one of those faces or facets of Torah, there's another, there's infinite iterations and expressions of it. So... It's not like, oh, everybody go to the store. Call, first of all, call Michael Rose and order an order Sfarim and Chasidus. Even if you're not going to learn it, it's good. He's yeah, a great sure. guy. Terrific. Plug a friend, you know? Absolutely. Or go to Binya and the Merkaz down below, you know? Yeah, whatever. Everybody go buy books from, from good Judaica stores and support each other in uh, each other's Parnassah. They need your Parnassah more than Jeff Bezos needs your Parnassah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do it, baby. He can put, may, if he's <laughs> listening, you know? Which is possible. He could send, he could send drones to, to all of us and to, to every Hasidic Sefer ever written. Um, no, but in all seriousness, there, there, there are books that, that, that resonate contemporary in the contemporary society much more than others that are trending. It's like, it's like every 
there's fads and trends and I never say for Toro when the Aron has mazel. So like yeah. books have the same mazel. There are very popular books these days, but people shouldn't listen and think you have to learn Hasidus in order to, in order to find satisfaction and happiness. There's dark Hasidus also. There are aspects of Hasidut which are, you know, connected to the world of, of song and prayer uh, and meditation and that are more experiential. There are people who love going to a tish and love the experience of, of something different, of experiencing another way in Yiddishkeit and feel uplifted by that without necessarily learning Hasidus. And the opposite is true also. You know, I don't know how much of Salvation enjoyed. Hey, David and Majitz, they say here and there, you know, he mentions anecdotes and and he talks about the how powerful it was seeing, you know, before Shoshanah in, in, in Poland, how the Ger Hasidim would be going to the Rebbe. And he waxes nostalgic about it. He talks about his Melamed from Chaslavich and whatever, right. you know. There's many aspects of, of Hasidut. It's, it's, what's amazing is I'm, I'm seeing my own kids uh, who grow up, you know, hearing it. They, they, they heard <laughs> right. it. They couldn't avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm getting a little older. I'm trying to like, you know, lay off a little bit. But like, my older ones heard it. And like, my daughter came back from, from Midrashah, you know, our, our daughters are friends. Uh, she came back from Midrashah and she was like, do we have the Nitivot Shalom? I'm like, do we have the Nesiva Shalom? I'm like, do you, do you live here? Did you live here your entire life? She's have like, you been you listening to me shalom? for the past 18 years? She's like, she's like you learned it to yourself? I'm like, I said, I said, oh, maybe call, I said, I'm like, Nesiva Shalom? She's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, Nesiva Shalom, the slonomer. Yeah, but there's an amazing thing that it's a safer of a, of a tzaddik who, who survived the war but, and lived in our generation. You know, he passed away 20 years ago. Um, the Sefer is written in modern, contemporary, accessible Hebrew, and it took off like wildfire in the religious Zionist community of Hebrew speakers and beginners. And it's interesting, like, I, I love the Svarim. I was never drawn to the world of Slanim, like, hang out in the Beit Medrash. I, I met the Rebbe many, many years ago before I was married once. I went just because I had the Sefer and enjoyed it because it was one of the only Hasidic Svarim that I could actually understand in Hebrew and, and it's in its original other farm had language that was much more esoteric and, and, and for beginners wasn't, it didn't make sense. And I was reading Ravari Kaplan and books from the rest of research Institute and, and, and English, Tanya in English, but something in Hebrew, you know, that's, but you're talking about like asking about what, what Hasidic masters to cleave to and where to learn and how to transmit. I'm like, hello. <laughs> I yell it. Hello. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we have the swarm. Uh, yeah. We actually have doubles because, because your mother also had them before we got married. Like, I literally, like, doubles of, of these form. You know, it's, it's interesting what kids pick up frontally, directly, versus the ruach of it, the, the spirit of it, and the feeling of it. Right. Um, you know, so that's very I'm, interesting. I'm, I'm answering too many things at one time. No, no, it's all but, good. You know. Let me move on to something else. I'm curious about how you would recommend that a teacher or a parent help his child develop passion. It's one of the most difficult things we all have to convince your child going to Minion, hopefully to Davin every day. That's one element. But to say actually to enjoy it as opposed to look at it as a chore, something you have to do to have kavana intent and depth in your tefillah and your prayer or even just to feel that passion, that that desire to really uh, to burst out. I think a lot of it comes as people get older, and some of it, obviously, some people are never going to develop it. Is there a way to help inculcate it, to help someone develop that sense of passion? You're asking the, I mean, this is the question. It's not a million-dollar question. It's like a, like a gazillion-dollar question, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, like, I have Itzahara, and I, I said deliberately to, like, to ask my friends, I, you know, I've thought about asking you at different points, you know? 
you see you, you see people excited you see kids learning you see kids excited you know i remember you know you made a, a couple of your kids made a see him i'm like how do you do that how do you get these kids to want to to learn you know it's a, it's a horror because everybody every you know we keep our you know stay in our own lane but i, I but it's a whole we all have our own challenges no matter who you are it doesn't I mean, matter it's a it's a it's a it's, it's a holy it's a horror it's a beautiful it's a horror mm -hmm. it's a it's a horror that, that comes from a beautiful place I'll, I'll answer your question with a with an anecdote that's okay. I'll let it happen. <laughs> I'm not. Answer, I think you've demonstrated that's the question. main way to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to answer, answer your question with a question. Like, how do you do it? Um, <laughs> the great Russian yeshiva and the great thinkers in contemporary Jewish life was once in, in, in his base medrash, in a shtibel, in shul, whatever it was. There was a guy in his base medrash who was with his son. And I'm sure the father had that same question of how do I, you know, cultivate passion in my kids? Because you're sitting there the whole time, you know, with this kid, you know, the whole time pointing in the sunset or saying, uh-uh, you know, you know, the uh-uh, mm -hmm. like tapping, tapping the sitter, pushing, looking inside, pointing inside, like, you know, patting the kid on the shoulder and saying, uh-uh, 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 yeah. you know, look inside. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, Rafutner came over to him and said, if you don't mind, like, what, 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 what were you doing there with your son? He goes, teaching him to, I'm showing him to daven with kavana. I'm showing him how to daven like a mensch, how to daven properly. And Rafutner said, I, I don't think so. I think you're just showing him how to like point in the sitter, tap somebody else on the shoulder and say, uh, 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 do as I say. I don't know how much that works uh, unless, we're, you know, we're really doing it. Maybe I'm, I'm two hands off. I, I just, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't know that we can teach passion. Maybe we could just create the opportunity for somebody to be... Or perhaps an environment to, in which it's celebrated. Yeah, well, that's right. right. Yeah, an environment, an opportunity. It's exactly to create the space for it. And that's kind of like what happens at the Seder too, you know? Create the environment, the experience around it, and set the table. And if it's true about a horse, you know, leading the horse to water, then, then it's... then How much more so it's true with another human being, let alone, you know, with parents and children where there's so much between us, you know... Uh, as we know, just to create that experience in the environment and to, 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 to enable the opportunity, I feel like that, that, that's, what our, that's what our job is. That's what we're trying to do. And, and, and different people will be passionate about different things. And I, I just, I'll just maybe, maybe expand the, the, the answer by saying, like, I aspire, I, I hope for our children that they should be passionate about, about, about life, to be passionate about something, something meaningful, something healthy, something good something real, you know, and that, I don't know, that's what I aspire to. That's what I hope for. That's what I daven for. And in my mind, you know, I'd love for that to express itself in Yiddishkeit and in Torah mitzvahs, but more fundamentally, it's to, it's to just have a simchas achayim and be excited about something. That's just to be glazed over, you know, in front of a screen, passive, you know, but to be to be pumped up about something, uh, even sports, whatever. You well, you know, know you know, my family were very were very big sports fans, and my family were, yes, were Boston, yes. Bostonians. Bostonians, yeah, of course, Bostonians. of course. Okay, so we're also arrogant. It's a combination that is, is lovely, but <laughs> <laughs> but and smart I, I, and smart and have good manners and, and obviously and, all of those things. But I think, one thing, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's always important. Admittedly, perhaps I'm just justifying my own behavior of enjoying the fact that my kids are Boston sports fans, but I do think it's important for my years of teaching that kids care about something. Now, the Mida, that attribute of caring, oh my gosh, the team lost and freaking out, that obviously on some level is not a good thing that that's what you care about, but the idea that you care about something can later on be translated into something else because the worst thing of all is when someone just doesn't care about anything. 
when there's yeah, no passion whatsoever for anything. And I think we have to remember that. And when people say, oh, that's a stupid thing to care about, but caring itself is not stupid at all. Caring itself is extraordinarily yeah. important. Yeah. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov said that it's, uh, it's better to believe in Narishkeit and to believe in something which is even against Torah than, than to believe in nothing. Because really, the, the, you know, like he's flexing that muscle of Amuna, of believing right. in something, something bigger than ourselves, something, something out there, you know, something not just me, something outside of myself. And that, that's an important muscle to flex. I remember I have a podcast with my friend Pesach Wilicki about baseball. It's called The Baseball Rabbi. And in that podcast, at one point, someone commented on something we said. He got really upset about a certain Hall of Fame issue. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I just remember telling Pesach, I said, everybody's going to believe in something. Halavai, 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 right. if only. Right. If only we really, people care, you know, if only. And that, that's part of the job of a parent or an educator is to identify that, that, that passion, identify that, that, that interest, that talent, and to dig there. Right, whether it's music or, or sports or politics, like you know, or cooking, or, or whatever it is, to find something and to to connect in that place and to respect that place, to honor that interest or that that belief or that you know that passion, and to to in a real way, not as a hechitimtza that I'll get it and I'll oh from there I'll get them to come to night seder, but but in and of itself to respect that there's something there that if a person's thirsting after something and yearning after something and believes in something, that's already something that deserves, you know, attention and deserves respect. For sure. Rabbi Willicke also said something years ago. He mentioned a quote, which I say at least once a week. He said about students when they're 18 years old, the cement is not yet dry. And just because you mentioned before, oh, how do I convince my kids to care about this or that or whatever? I think it's always important to remember that they are unfinished products. Admittedly, we all are unfinished products. Yeah, bro, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's not dry when it's 43 either. That's also it's right, not dry right. when it's... I, what about 50? I, I hope it's not. What about 50? I, I don't want it to be. Yeah, <laughs> 50 might be. No, no, I, I, why should it be dry? Why should it be dry? Why should it be dry? That, that, that like a person is in a constant state of, of change and growth. Adam's called, we're called a holech. Adamel elyon, right? We're... God is infinite, and a man's potential to grow and change and, and, and iterate in different forms is infinite. The, the, who says the book is done? The book is done when we leave the world, and then it's just another volume for our next Gilgal or our next stage in, in the next world. Every day is another page, and every part of life could be another chapter, and some chapters are happy, and some, some chapters are you know challenging or painful or sad, and altogether it makes this big book called, called Life. Yeah. And uh, just be patient, turn the page, and, uh, you know, and, and let's, let's wait for the happy ending. Amen. That sounds great. I really enjoyed everything that you said today. And Rav Judah, I will ask you if you'll come on again, perhaps before the Chagim and Elul, love we to. can then uh, discuss even more issues about faith if you're willing to do so, because it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always gain so much, and I'm sure the listeners did as well. So thank you very much for joining very me today. Sweet. Same is true for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today. Please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast, share and tell your friends about it, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out. Join the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook and like and follow the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook. Visit jewishcoffeehouse.com to find some of the best podcasts in the Jewish world, including Chochman Ashim, Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. 
Please also join the Jewish Coffee House team as a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get great bonus podcasts, excellent merch, and more while helping Jewish Coffee House to reach our growing audience. You can find a link to Patreon in the description of the podcast. Finally, if you are interested in having your own podcast, Jewish Coffee House can help make it happen. We will assist you with anything you need. We can teach you the skills to make a podcast that sounds as good as an FM radio show. We can help you with recording, editing, music, graphic art, promotion, and more. We can give you tips on podcast styles, interviewing hosts, guests, and everything else you need to make your podcast the best it can be. Whatever you need, Jewish Coffee House will work with you to make it happen and make it better than you imagined. Write to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com and let me help you get started reaching hundreds or even thousands of people with a high-quality podcast. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.